Hello. 67 years ago, a 49-year-old woman called Ruth Tucker received a kidney transplant in a pioneering operation in Evergreen Park, Illinois, here in the United States. The transplanted kidney survived only 10 months, but it gave Ruth Tucker's own kidneys time to recover, and it meant that she would live for a further five years. Five years that she probably wouldn't have had without the transplanted kidney. Today, it seems hard to imagine life without being able to swap kidneys, hearts, pancreas and lungs, and the list of organs that can be routinely exchanged is getting longer. These procedures represent a huge leap forward for medicine, but they don't exist in a vacuum. The decision to donate or to accept a new organ can often involve an array of people. There are family members, medical experts, lawyers, religious leaders, and of course, the individuals who might be giving or receiving an organ. Each has a voice. Sometimes a transplant cannot occur until a consensus can be found. My name is Asan Masood, and I'm a science journalist based in the UK. In this podcast, we're going to simulate how decisions will be made in one transplant scenario involving a Muslim family. They are the mother and the father of a 14-year-old girl. Let's call her Sarah. Sarah is on life support with severe brain injuries. Sadly, she's unlikely to live, and the family must decide whether to donate her organs, and the decision is made more complicated by the fact that mother and father come from different Islamic traditions. The mother follows a branch of the minority but sometimes more liberal Shia tradition. The father, on the other hand, is from a branch of the majority Sunni tradition. We're going to explore the issues with representatives of some of those who would, in real life, be making decisions on whether or not to donate. Playing the role of family representative Najabazi and in the role of healthcare systems representative Hassan Shanawani. We're also joined in the studio by three experts, expert commentators in the field of religion and bioethics. They are Asim Padella, who's a medic. Hello, Asim. Good morning. Abdulaziz Sashadina from George Mason University, who studies bioethics and Islam. Hello, everyone. Yes. And we have Robert Tapan from Towson University, who studies reproductive <coughs> technologies in Iran. Thanks Welcome. for having me. Welcome, Robert. So, very briefly, panel, from our expert panel, could you maybe begin with a very, very short statement of where you think the family should go next? Starting with you, Abdulaziz. Um, I think a very important issue that underlies the decision to donate the organs of the brain-dead person is actually the definition of death itself, whether it is acceptable in, in a particular school of thought and whether they would uh, submit to the physician's uh, statement that the person is brain-dead. And that would then allow uh, the family to decide if they can donate the, don- donate the organs. And so in a sense, what you're saying is that if, if, uh, if Sarah has indeed died, then the debate begins about the acceptability or not, but it's about defining death first. Exactly. I think okay. the, the very important issue, fundamental issue is how do we define death? Because in the traditional explanation of death, we are talking about the death of the heart, so to speak. The heart stops beating. That was the criterion that was used in the traditional definition of death. But the brain death... 
the heart could be moving because there is ventilator connected to the heart. So that's why we find that there is a question mark in front of the brain death. Okay. Who accepts that criterion? Who doesn't? Thank you. Awesome. So uh, what I heard from the case, however, is that the, the loved, mem- uh, loved one is severely brain injured. So I haven't heard that she has been even thought to be dead at this point. And so the, where the family should go is to think about what the situation is for them, right? If you're a parent, you know that if your child has severely compromised neurological status, how you would feel, right? Where are they? So I think they should be thinking about, we should be thinking about as physicians, helping them realize where they are, where in their situation. And so I would advise them to take some time to pause, to think about their daughter, to think about what the situation is, to get some data points from the physicians and from their uh, other counselors that are in the hospital. And then we can talk about whatever else will happen. But you have to understand the tragedy first. Robert. Right, and, and part of this idea about brain death is, in terms of religious sens- sensibilities, is that death is, in the Islamic tradition, something to do with the soul leaving the body. And that's not a scientifically provable idea, right? So how do you, can you relate the death of a person, whether that's brain death or cardiorespiratory death, to the departure of the soul? And brain-dead patients kept on ventilators don't seem to be in that condition of somebody whose soul has left. Very briefly, Asim. So I just, I also want, as, as, a, as someone as a medic, right, we are using a term, brain death, that doesn't exist. Right? It's a misnomer. So there's no such thing as brain death. There's no brain dead. We adopt criteria. Do I think the person's not going to return to a conscious status? Okay. Let's run through what actually happened to Sarah. At 10 to 8 this morning, Sarah ran out of her house towards the school bus. The bus was waiting on the other side of the road. She was excited to see a friend waving, but in that excitement, Sarah failed to check the road properly. And as the teenager emerged from between two parked cars, she was hit by a truck. The driver didn't have a chance. It was a tragic accident. Sarah was rushed to hospital. The emergency team did all they could, but to no avail. She was declared dead shortly after 10 o'clock. Both the mother and the father were at her bedside when a representative of the hospital approaches them and asks if he would have a word in private. Would they, he says, consider donating their daughter's organs? Hassan Shanawani, you're representing the hospital. Can you tell us about Sarah's medical condition and also (coughs) enlighten us a little bit about Asim's point about the discussion on brain death? So, so to be pr- precise, in in most places in uh, in the United States, actually the the process of introducing the possibility of organ donation would not be done by a hospital staff member. Uh, in fact, uh, it's done by a separate agency that's sponsored by the state. Um, What's the name uh, of the agency? It's it literally varies from state, from state to state. To state. Uh, okay. In the state where I where I practice and, and work, it's it's called Gift of Life of Michigan. Um, and it's a it's a state agency. It is a it is a private organization. Right. Um, some are for profit. Some are not for profit. Um, and they are licensed with the organization, and they generate their revenue from the organ donation process. So I would actually not be a hospital representative um, in in most cases. The hospital representative typically will have told Sarah's family of of the situation tragedy. They will probably have introduced them to an idea that uh, another clinician, typically a nurse, um, will come 
to the bedside to introduce the subject. And then it is at that point in time that the entire conversation is taken over by the organ transplant uh, uh, organization. Uh, okay, thank, thank you. We'll come back to you in a sec. Naja Bazi, Naja, you're a consultant nurse and you work in these sorts of situations in cross-cultural settings. You're representing the family. Can you lay out who the parents are and how do you think their beliefs would influence the choices that they have to make coming from these two traditions that they're at? So um, just to clarify, I am a clinical transcultural specialist. And so um, the clinical piece is important. Um, so from my perspective, I am neither going to advocate a hospital's position nor the organ donation gift of life position. I would be strictly working with the family to understand how they're feeling and to give them a space, a very safe space, to be able to think through not just organ donation, but to also deal with the tragedy and the grief on hand. So it's important from my perspective to be able to allow this grieving family the respect and the dignity that is required for any family without the imposition of someone knocking on the door to ask this very difficult question. I would look for the subtleties in the way in which the question is asked so that I can determine the context. So oftentimes, it may be said that this is an opportunity to have your child live on in a legacy um, that could be you know, wonderful and beautiful. My role is to find out whether or not the family is even interested in their grief in that legacy dimension. They may not be there yet. They may not ever want to be there. But they don't have so, a lot of time, do they? They don't. Well, you know, depending on what state you're in, for most states, once brain death, if that's what we're going to call it for the sake of the conversation, is declared, there's usually 24 hours to remove the ventilator. However, when organ procurement is something that could be interesting to the family, then we tend to make the length of the time longer to allow the family to digest the idea if they were interested, which is interesting in and of itself. So in terms of the family, I would be assessing the religiosity of the family and to take away the labels, because just because someone is Muslim doesn't mean they're, a, they're an adherent Muslim. Just because they may be of the Sunni sect or the Shia sect does not mean that they themselves um, are interested in knowing what those rulings are. So I'm there to guide the conversation by listening a lot and then being um, really an advocate for the family. And then lastly, there is um, the difficult piece, which is that for Muslims we need to bury before the next sunset. So there's the urgency, and Muslims have to navigate those stages of grief so quickly. And what does that do to the family? So you've 
mentioned the theology. Let's move to our theological experts. Robert, I'd like to start with you. Um, if you could put yourself in the shoes of the father who comes from a Shi tradition, what would be the sort of the bounds of acceptability uh, in the Shi theology when it comes to questions such as this? Sure. And, you know, there are some uh, parameters and things to keep in mind, as Naja said. <clears throat> For example, we might assume, and perhaps if I was this Shi father, I would, and, and I, this was on the table, I had to consider it, I would consult with my marja, right, my, the scholar that I follow. I told us somebody, right? Because so this would be a religious leader? That's right. Yeah. One of, one of the, the um, grand ayatollahs, as they're known, one of the high-ranking scholars. Now, I don't know that that's always going to be what somebody does, because, again, we don't want to say that whether somebody is you know, Sunni or Shi, it, this is simply a, a religious thing. I just look at the book and it tells me what to do, or I just get the ruling from the scholar and it tells me what to do. All those issues of family concern, of uh, care for your loved one, uh, all those things will come into play. But I would think that would be the yeah. first step to consult with uh, one of those. And what leaders. would one of those scholars from the Shi tradition advise the father today? What would they say? Um, I mean, it's it's really going to depend. This is the thing with yeah. the, the Shi leadership is that there's no there's a hierarchy hierarchy of sorts, but there's no papal figure. See so, what, in other words, almost what you're saying is even within Shiism, there's actually a spectrum of views. Oh, absolutely, yes. Right, and and could you just sort of could perhaps just chalk what though what that spectrum might be? Um, yeah, I would think that there's, uh, and I might defer to Professor Sajidina for, we'll, for we'll more insights. We'll come to Professor Sajidina in a minute. But, yeah. um, I mean, again, you can see in Iran there's actually mm. a government law that permits uh, mm. cadaveric donation from brain-dead patients. Mm. Right. So it, it's really going to depend. that You and, might and have that, or you might find a prohibitive stance as well. And just... The government law is that does that have a theological underpinning or is mm -hmm. it just simply a law yes. from the state? That, that's right. That's right. It does have a theological underpinning because it has to be any state law, civil mm. law has to be approved by religious scholars. And, and how do they? What is the theological basis of that law that allows cadaveric donation? Um, you know, in the case of Iran, I'm I'm not sure if it's based on public uh, interest or it's monetary advantage that one could derive from organ donation. And I think there is a worry that uh, if so commercialization... Just, 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 just to unpack that, yeah, what does that mean, monetary advantage? So. means I could sell my kidney uh, for a certain amount. I could also charge someone uh, to receive a cornea, for example, let's say, which is, again, transplantable. And therefore, you have a big concern. A theological question is, does this body belong to me? Is it mine to make a decision yeah. for me to go ahead and donate it part of parts of it, or should I be the one, you know, deferring to religious authorities to tell me what to do? Because I, as an ordinary Muslim, I don't think yeah. the body belongs to me. My body belongs to God, and certainly I'm not in a position. For example, the law says quite clearly, Islamic law says quite clearly that you cannot make a wasiyah, you cannot make a last will of testament saying that I'm donating my eyes or I'm donating my kidneys because that, you know, testament is null and void. It's invalid because the body is not yours. How can you make a decision about it? So it's there are so many issues in theological circles. And just, just, you're just, right that, you know, some of them would rule.
rule for it and some would go. There's a pluralism of opinions, whether you can donate. But there is, I think what I find to be the trend in Iran, Iraq and other places is that... In, in the Shia communities? I would say even among the Sunni community, Dr. Yassin's works in, in uh, for example, Jordan, this quite famous bioethicist, he's a Sunni bioethicist, Shafi, uh, in school, he belongs to one particular school of Sunni thought. You find that they are supporting organ donation and saying that although they are not convinced that you can charge anything, the mon monetary advantage is ruled out. But out of altruism, you can do it because ultimately it's going to save somebody's life. For those in the Shi tradition who do not agree, what is their reasoning? What is their justification? They would simply say that it's beyond our jurisdiction to make any decision about our bodies. We need to leave it to God. Mm -hmm. And I would rather see myself be buried after my death than somebody retrieving organs from me. There's also this belief in the soul that you mentioned, right. you know, then what happens to me on the Day of Judgment. I was consulted, for example, in the Mercy Hospital when the Iranian boy, 18, 19 years old, was injured very badly and the hospital wanted to retrieve the organs. They wanted to retrieve the cornea especially. And the mother could not, Iranian mother could not come to terms with what will happen to my son on the day of judgment? Will he be awakened without his eyes? And there is, you know, you can see the emotions and the connections that human beings have towards one each other's bodies and mother. She loves the son. And so I think it was a very pitiful situation and it was hard to convince her. I used the Quran saying the God who did not bring you, who did not, you know, need all these body of to bring you back in life, you were nothing, he brought you back. Worship to life. Why, why won't he be able to bring your son's eyes on that day of judgment? She was not convinced. Uh -huh. Emotionally, she was drained. She could not agree to it. Yeah, the, the theological perspective can certainly account for this, right? Yes, God, yes. God created from nothing in the beginning. He can do it again. Asim, let's move to you. And, and we've talked a lot about the father and, coming, and the, the range of perspectives that come from within the Shi'i tradition. Let's move to the majority Sunni tradition. And this is now the, this is the situation that the mother will be facing. What are the, again, what are the spectrum of views which a mother in this situation is likely to encounter? In my reading of the Sunni tradition, there are three dominant sort of opinions, okay? And they each have their own bases within the Quran and the Sunnah. The first opinion is that no donation is permissible, right? And that is on the basis of a theological argument with a legal argument as well. The theological argument runs that if you, the body has uh, karama, it's endowed with dignity by God, all right? And it has hurma, it is also has inviolability. Beyond the fact that it's the vessel for the human being itself, it has inviolability even when it's not the vessel for the soul. This comes from a hadith where uh, the Prophet no, Muhammad... Hadith is a tradition or a saying of the Prophet Muhammad. Exactly, and, and he said uh, there are many traditions, but one of them is about the fact that breaking the bone, Adam al-Mayyid, it's like you break the bone of the living person, right? And this was in the right. context of a grave digger. There's many different contextual issues. And this is an authentic tradition right. that is agreed upon. And there are multiple versions of it. But in any case, from that, they said, look, even the dead body has some dignity and it's inviolable. So the point being that it's a theological argument, one, that based on karama and hurma, 
And the what, are they, what do those two words mean? So, uh, so hurma is inviolability, karama mm-hmm. would be dignity. Okay. And on top of that, if you think that the body becomes a, I mean, the human is a bunch of body parts, you lead to a further theological reduction of the dignity of the human being as a special creation. Okay. And that's what happens in the organ markets and other things. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the three. That, that's one of the three. That's okay. the first. So it's right. not permissible. It's haram. Okay. The second and haram thing, means not allowed. Forbidden. Forbidden. Okay. The second stream of thought is that it is contingently permissible. Okay, so the contingency is that there is a dire need, darura, or a life threat. And this comes into play looking at the society at hand. So we often talk about organ donation and organ transplantation as a cure, as a societal need, right? And we should know that there are, for example, kidney donation, there are other remedies science has. We have dialysis. In your own home country, in the UK, after a certain age, they do not pay for transplantation because they think you have the same life expectancy with dialysis that you would with an organ. So this idea that we have multiple cures, but most often the scholars have said, no, this is a cure for a dire need. The person will die. So this is the the language. We said life-saving. Not every organ is Mm life-saving. A kidney could not be life-saving. So just on the perspective... Yes. Do you want to just give us the theological justification for that second perspective? Well, the, the life is... threat. So what I'm trying to give mm. you the sense of, mm. when you say mm. I'm going to say it's contingent based on life threat, mm-hmm. we have to understand if there is a life threat, okay. if there will be a life-saving organ. Mm-hmm. Not every organ is life-saving. A cornea is not, mm-hmm. right? Okay. A kidney might not be okay. at a certain stage of life. Mm-hmm. So that contingency is that mm-hmm. there is a life-saving aspect to this organ transplantation, and there is no other therapy. Right. So that's the second step. And the third the third stream says that it is based on public benefit or amma, maslaha. So here now it is permissible. Now, let me give you this a fourth thing here. Okay. That because of language. We talked about deceased donation mm. and living donation. Okay. Now you're talking about brain death. Brain death is not considered deceased donation at that stage if you don't believe brain death is death, as Professor Sardina mm. said. So we need to understand that each one of these opinions ride on a conception of death mm which may or may not accept brain death as deceased. Yeah. And if it's not, yeah. then you can't use that argument for donation. Got it, which is the point that Professor Sajidina, you were making earlier. Right. Okay, right. all right. Let's move on in the sense that if this was Europe or if this was the UK, um, there is a, a, um, a, a post holder in uh, the public healthcare system called the chaplain. And most hospitals, all hospitals that are in the public system, which is more than nine out of 10, uh, would have a Muslim chaplain. And the Muslim chaplain would be an employee of uh, the, the national healthcare system, and he or she would work very closely with uh, the different um, clinical and non-clinical staff in these kinds of situations. Now, more often than not, the Muslim chaplain would enter into these conversations. And the interesting situation that has emerged is that obviously because of the, a shortage of organs, and there is a worldwide shortage of, of many types of organs, uh, there is a particular shortage amongst Muslim families. A lot of the discussion that you've had so far is is about the the tragedy of Sarah, of course, and 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 the loss of life for this particular individual. Um, it, it might be worthwhile for me. We, we've talked about maslaha and the public benefit. Let's let's talk a little bit about that for for a moment. For every organ that gets donated, depending on the organ that we're talking about, be it heart or lungs, we have between ten and fifteen people that are waiting on the transplant list. So, so um, uh, we, there, are, there are long lines of people whose lives will be potentially prolonged. 
So there's a substantial public health need, I would argue, um, that is that is benefited, and 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 um, and we and and the the limiting factor for the most part is the supply side. That is to say that that we don't have enough willing donors. And um, you mentioned at the beginning of uh, in your introduction of the person whose organ didn't last very long after it was successfully transplanted. Um, since over the intervening 65, 70 years, the science of transplantation has really been substantial. And, and, and I mean, the, the, the technology, the medications that allow organs to last longer, most kidneys last between 15 and 20 years now, lungs last between 10 and 15 years. So people's lives are substantially improved and lengthened. And, and so for me, as the, as, the, as the clinical provider who's working for the organ donation, with all respect to the discussion that we've been talking about, I'm looking at these 10, 11 people, really 50 or 60 people, if you think about each organ and the 10 people that are waiting for each one of those organs, I'm looking at, at all of those people. And, and, and so uh, it, it's, it's, it may seem uh, uh, morbid to, to reduce the, the, this issue to some simple actuarial, but the reality is, is that that's really what it comes down to, doesn't it? And, and, and so... Um, uh, it is not my job to advocate for Sarah. I'm, I'm advocating. So for I, I have my own Sarah, who is going to die unless she gets a new heart, and and her family has they 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 have concerns too, and and she and 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 I would argue that that person has her own dignity, and her own now. Um, every goal has a method which becomes a task, and and one would argue that if my goal to preserve the dignity of my own Sarah, who is about to die because her heart is about to fail, does should not infringe on the right of of this other child who who has died, um, but um but but that that's not my concern as the transplant physician. So Nadja, let's come back to you now. Um, you've heard in a sense a perspective you may well have. Heard many many times, you know, from uh, a representative such as uh, Hassan, how would the family respond? There are families who reflect back that they feel a, an injustice, and what makes them want to donate the organ or organs is that they feel that, to your point, if their daughter needed an organ they would be in the shoes of the family that's waiting and they would do anything to save the life of their daughter because God has commanded us to do everything we can to save life. I have found more than a handful of families who have struggled with the idea that Islam, depending on their school of thought, may forbid them from doing something that they actually want to do, but they don't feel that they have permission. They have permission to receive and the benevolence of receiving it, but not give. Hmm. That's a very interesting dynamic. I have families um, who have shared with me that their scholars and leaders have discussed with them that Muslim organs have a certain sanctity to them. For example, the heart has um, this idea, spiritual muwahideen, that they believe in the oneness of God and that their heart has never enjoined any partner to God. And please help me through this. (laughs) 
and that a liver, for example, has never been intoxicated with alcohol, which is forbidden, or the body has been sanctified in the sense that it's never had pork products. And so there's this discussion about it's okay to receive organs who may not have been, and then once they're into the, the Muslim body, they are somehow purified. But to give the purified organ to someone who may, um, what's the correct word? I'm Shepherd. trying to be, um, who, may, who may intoxicate it in some sort of sense or desanctify it, right. I guess is a better word. That becomes uh, psychologically troubling. Uh, Naj, as you mentioned, the clock is ticking. Uh, there often isn't a huge amount of time to make decisions. And there's, it, these are laden with complex theological issues with, you know, just unimaginable emotional uh, burdens. Um, and then, of course, the sort of weight of expectation of society and community and family. But the clock is ticking and mm -hmm. a burial has to be performed. So one by one, starting with, really with you, Asim, you know, what would you say the family, if you were called to advise in a sort of chaplaincy role, for example, or an advisory role, what would you what would you advise? So I think, and I think we skirted the chaplaincy question, but yeah. the question is what you said. What's the role of the chaplain, right? Um, and we have models, same thing for the physician. What is the mo model for the physician? And a good barometer for this is Emmanuel Emmanuel's four models of the patient doctor relationship. You know, Ezekiel Emmanuel, Linda Emmanuel, both of whom I know. And they talk about four models. Right? One model is uh, you are an informant. You just tell the family what to do, they decide. One model is that you're actually uh, a deliberative agent. You and the family together put out the moral values, the moral-laden questions here, and together make a decision because there are two moral agents here in a physician's case, but also in the chaplain's case. He's advising a family. So you come together in a deliberative model. There's a model where, you, and that's your, in that sense, you're a moral guide. There's an interpretive model where you just take the family's sort of values, you interpret them into the medical scenario, and you fit back to what they want to do, right? And then there's just the paternalistic model where you override. And most, they say, that the deliberative model is the best. You're two moral agents. So if the chaplain is an agent, right, he's not an agent of the state. They're autonomous agents as well in a moral action. They can claim conscience if they are going to participate in something where they are not wanting to participate. And they, if they're going to follow the deliberative model, they tell the family, here's what I think. And I was a consultant in a case in the UK with a chaplain who decided, you know, there was a big case where he did not promote organ donation. Because the, the, the chaplain didn't promote. Because he felt right. that it was impermissible according to the law that he followed, the Hanafi law. And they were saying, well, you're a state actor. And he said, no, I'm a moral agent in a conversation. So if I were that person, I would have a similar mm -hmm. view. Mm -hmm. I, contrary to Hassan, I believe brain death is a dying state. That's the Islamic position that I hold. It's not a dead state. And for me, then, only living donation right, where you've made your own decree is permissible. That's how I think about it. And I would not advise the family to do that. But, I'm, but that's me, my view, right? I need to understand what their views are. And if they ask me what are the various opinions, then you give them the various opinions and the reasoning behind it and say what guides your heart. So that's how I would approach the situation. So in a sense, you would lay out the bounds of, of, of what you think is... Uh, what, what, here, are the, here are the guidelines, the mm. various agencies and various fatwas mm. that come out. Mm. Here is the basis. Mm. Here, as a physician and an Islamic bioethicist, I can mm. critique each one of those and tell you what the basis is. What do you want to follow? Robert, the clock is ticking. What yeah. would you advise? Well, and you know, I think maybe this, what we're hearing in this discussion shows that even a well-trained chaplain isn't enough. 
mm-hmm. and perhaps mm-hmm. we need to think in terms of you know for for perhaps a non-Muslim patient facing the same situation, you might mm-hmm. have a, an entire hospital sort of ethics committee who would talk about these things in different ways. In uh, some Muslim countries, they have those at least on an ad hoc basis. Uh, maybe you need multiple people from multiple perspectives, at least that relate to your your patients. In this case, we have two parents from different schools of thought, so maybe the need is even greater, to uh, walk them through these options. And also, I think there, are, there is something really important about the not assuming this is strictly a fatwa argument or something like that, but that, you know, what's the dynamic between the parents? If I'm the Shia father and I make one decision, how is that going to affect my Sunni wife? Is it something she agrees with? Is it something she's going to resent? Parents already have those conflicts, mm-hmm. right? So let alone bringing in the religious element. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that it's very important for our listeners to understand that whatever I say or anybody says, I don't think I'm, I'm in a position to advocate my own stance on an issue, but I would say that I am a chaplain in the hospital. I work as a chaplain. And I also work, I see patients from different traditions. So I'm not simply limited to Muslim patients. We are the ones who are negotiating it with their families, but we simply recommend what we tell them. We are not in a position to decide on their behalf. Would you, I mean, it's clear from both Asim and Robert that they would, in fact, not so much make a recommendation as to lay out what a position is and what the evidence might be, and then, in a sense, close the door at that point. Would you agree with that, or would you actually go one step further and say, no, I think you should do X? There was a case of the Iraqi man who who had a stroke. This was the third time. And the doctors told me, they, they called me at nine o'clock in the evening. I went to the hospital. They said, we cannot revive this person. Anything we do is futile. This is, he's not going to survive. The wife was the one who was earning, was working, and they had to make a decision about his, about discontinuing by the life support. And they were torn because they were the followers, the Iraqis, there was the followers of Ayatollah Sistani who said, once you start the machines, you can't stop them. But the Ayatollah Sistani sitting in Najaf doesn't, has no idea that a woman who is working and supporting this man, and now she is in a position whereby she's being asked to say, okay, ventilator is okay for years, I will now take care of her, him in the hospital, and the insurance company is not willing to pay either. So here you have a very, very complex situation what can Islamic Sharia say to such a situation? Whether is she supposed to give in to what the doctors, the specialists are saying? I have dealt with those cases and I came out saying that the only thing I can do is I can recommend for you that this is the right course of action. It's up to you to make a decision about it. Awesome, you wanted to briefly come in. Yeah, so he, he's brief. So I want you to understand as a chaplain in the United States, okay, the model is non directional counseling. Which means? Which means that you're just doing an informative model, okay? There are models in the Muslim world where that's not the modus operandi. For example, in Saudi Arabia, they're called Murshidadini. And you're supposed to actually help a family make the right decision religiously, theologically. Do you have an example of that? 
th- like this case in Saudi Arabia. If this case mm-hmm. was happening, Saudi Arabian law has organ donation. They permit brain death, and they would if the family is is un- struggling with how to reconcile their faith and the theological theological argument, they would present them theological arguments. So my point only is we have to understand the context. And here in CP, it's non-directional, and this is not the case everywhere. I want to come to you, Nigel, as the family representative, having heard what you have, and obviously having been in these scenarios. Um, unfortunately, many, many times, what would you say? My role is to first try to understand what the patient's will was and to assess that, and then to help the family. Now, I am not in a position, nor will I ever put myself in a position, to rule. It's not my job. I can only rule for myself. So my goal is to facilitate the discussion make sure the questions have been answered appropriately, get people what they need and allow safe space so that when the person is buried, the family is left intact and the person who has passed on is left intact. What determines intact is not up to me. It's up to the family. And so I am the facilitator of conversation and the gatherer of knowledge, or the person who's um, helping people connect the dots, whether it's from gift of life, or their scholars, or their community, or just themselves. And this isn't exclusive to Muslims that I do. I do this clear across all of my work. And we burden families as well, making medical decisions that they don't have the knowledge to make. And so I often speak about this idea of how sometimes absolving a family. What do you mean by absolving? Meaning that you need to leave the family in a position where they can grieve without guilt. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to Hassan Shanawani about this, that sometimes when a family really cannot make this decision and they feel burdened to the point where they can't even grieve the loss of their loved one, then there's something wrong with the way we're doing medicine as well. Vice versa, though, if a patient believes in something, regardless of the religion, I would advocate for that patient's right to leave this world the way they believe they needed to. The work that has been done on Muslim attitudes towards organ donation in diasporic communities, UK, Australia, United States, right, including my own, I've done two large studies, shows that Muslims have more negative attitudes towards organ donation than other populations across the board. And about 40 to 50 percent of that negative attitude is because of lack of religious knowledge about the permissibility, impermissibility, and whether those rulings apply contextually to their loved one. So there's a huge knowledge gap in the lay Muslim community about what their religion says and if it applies now. As far as Muslim physicians, in my national survey of Muslim physicians in the United States, 79% felt more troubled by withdrawing life support than withholding it. All 46% did not agree that brain death was equivalent to cardiac death. So the Muslim physician community, that is more than 5% of doctors in the United States, is particularly troubled with end-of-life care scenarios. And this has a religious affection, but also a practical inflection upon their, you know, on what they do every day. Robert. What I'll do is try inefficiently to channel my colleague Shreen Hamdi, who wrote a great book about organ donation, and think about the context in which these cases happen. And just to think about what she saw in Egypt, again, religion doesn't always map over to decisions. And so she provided examples of 
physicians who are part of the Muslim Brotherhood who said brain death is fine and deceased, uh, cadaverous transplantations are fine, um, and, and vice versa. And so there are other you know, factors that are, are going on in any particular place and case which could influence why... I may not simply follow this scholar, Sistani or Fadlala, out of tradition. I might have a certain feeling that this, in this particular case, my loved one's organs are being taken away unjustly or I'm not part of a fair system, and that might be the reason why I'm not interested in donation. Whereas in a, in a more just uh, distribution, not perfect, but a more just system like the United States, maybe I've seen that system work better, and I'm more open to a justification, religious justification, that that uh, corresponds to that. Um, I think that uh, my take on organ donation or working towards encouraging Muslims to donate organs so that they can help other patients, uh, I must be, I, I must state very humbly that I don't think there is any absolute position that I need to uh, indoctrinate my patients whom I go and see or even the community. Rather, my suggestion in the community has been to think altruistically of how they can help others because there, I think modern medicine has impinged upon the natural course of life and we have somehow submitted unquestioningly to the medical advancements without thinking what kind of issues are they creating for the families, for the loved ones who are left behind. After all, death is not only for the person who dies. That is for those who are left behind. We've come to the end of our exploration of this complex and very difficult subject. And I'd like to thank our panelists, Asim Padella, Robert Tappan, Abdulaziz Sachadina, and playing the role of family representative Najabazi and in the role of healthcare systems representative Hassan Shanawani. And thanks also to the Contending Modernities Programme of the University of Notre Dame. Thank you. There are at least two possible endings to this story, probably more. But rather than lay down an ending, I want to leave the final decision on the best outcome to you. If you were Sarah's family, what would you do? <laughs>